Hello again, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Welcome to our first podcast of the new year. And My name is Jeff Kwame. I'm your host, and I'm the Executive Director of the Connecticut Certification Board. And on behalf of the Board of Directors and the staff at the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Scope of Practice. According to the National Sexual Violence Resource Center in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, acts of sexual violence are common experiences for people who use drugs. Common scenarios of such horrors are when the victims are unconscious or forced to have sex in exchange for drugs or money. Additionally, those who use opioids are often targeted for victimization due to the stigma related to using those particular substances. Clearly, the use of drugs and alcohol is a risk factor for sexual violence. Victims may also begin to use or increase their use of substances in response to sexual violence and the trauma that comes from the ordeal. The rates of use of drugs and alcohol in those that experience trauma are twice as high as people who experience depressive disorders. We are fortunate today to welcome a guest with expertise in the anti-sexual violence space, including roles as a preventionist and victim advocate for the United States Navy and as the Justice Systems Coordinator at the Louisiana Foundation Against Sexual Violence. Brittany Hunt is a licensed clinical social worker originally from Rhode Island. She received her undergraduate degree at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York, and completed her graduate work at the Tulane University School of Social Work in New Orleans. She currently serves as the clinical oversight specialist at TPN.Health in New Orleans, a digital platform linking behavioral health professionals, treatment facilities, hospitals, and employee wellness programs. Thanks for helping us kick off a new season of Scope of Practice, Brittany. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here to have this conversation. You know, as we were talking a little bit before we started recording, I think that when we look at the the basic training for those uh, addiction professionals, we don't, this isn't something that's often talked about. It's often a really difficult thing to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's why it's important that we do it because it is so difficult. So to begin, let's start with a, a working definition of sexual violence so that we can come from a place of common understanding. How would you best define it? Yeah. So when we're talking about sexual violence, we're really talking about a very large spectrum of behaviors. So generally, when you're thinking about sexual violence, what you're thinking about is sexual assault, which is the actual physical act of assaulting someone. So that could be rape, which is when there's penetration involved, or it could be another form of sexual contact physically, such as you know, grabbing someone, um, forcing someone to perform a sexual act without their consent, really anything involving the physical body. So when we're talking about sexual assaults, we are talking about any of those variety of acts when there's no consent involved. So consent is when someone is freely, willingly, enthusiastically saying, yes, I want to participate in this behavior. So when consent isn't present, that could be someone who does not consent, someone who doesn't say yes, they say no, or someone who's not able to give consent in that moment. So that could be someone who is incapacitated by drugs or alcohol. You know, that's someone who are not in their right mind to be able to make the decision to have sex. It could be someone who is underage, so they don't yet you know, have the capacity to really understand this situation that they're walking into, or it could be someone with a disability, perhaps. So there are a number of situations where someone either does not consent or cannot consent. So that's kind of more the physical sexual assault. And as I said, there are other actions that 
would be considered under the umbrella of sexual violence that are less physical, something like sexual harassment, you know, having someone holler at you on the street, having someone in your workplace make an inappropriate comment or an inappropriate joke. Those are actions that might not rise to that criminal level of sexual assault because there's no physical contact, but they're still wrong and they're still hurtful and they kind of still come from that same place. So I really like to think about sexual assault as existing on that spectrum and understanding that we're not going to end sexual assault unless we end all of those other behaviors and actions that create an environment and a culture and a society where these act- these actions are okay, if that makes sense. It does. And especially in, in the world of folks who are addiction professionals understanding things on a spectrum, the mm-hmm. old thinking was so to speak, somebody gets a DUI, well, they're an alcoholic. And we recognize that substance use disorders also fall on a spectrum. And that every, if we're going to intervene along that spectrum, the interventions are different based upon the nature of the uh, where we're at on that spectrum. So it sounds like it's the same thing. How we would deal with somebody who may make an inappropriate joke at work is certainly different than how we'd handle that situation than where there's something physical. Yes, absolutely. And that's the case for, you know, so many of these issues that we work with. People are really looking for that one size fits all. This is the solution. And that's not going to happen because every single assault is different. Every single survivor is different. Every single perpetrator is different. So there is a lot of gray area. And that's and we, so many things come into play in how somebody responds and uh, you know, what the effect is on them. There's so many factors that, that come into play. People may have similar experiences, but don't experience it necessarily the same. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, what are some of the root causes? I would say that the root causes are inequality, and that's a really, really big concept, super macro level. But really, sexual assault, it is about power and control. I think for a very long time, people thought about sexual assault as this crime of lust and passion. This is something that men did, exclusively men did, because they can't keep their hands off of women. And we know that that's not true. We know that this is something that people do to make another person feel small, to tear another person down, because that's how they're going to make themselves feel big, make themselves feel powerful. So we see that so much in this world in that generally the people who are most likely to be victimized are people who have the least amount of power in our society. So oftentimes that's people with disabilities, LGBTQ people, very often people who have substance abuse issues, because unfortunately perpetrators know I can get away with this with these people. They already are at a power disadvantage. It's someone who's very easy to take advantage of. So really it is racism, sexism, heterosexism, all of those societal forces and oppressions create sexual assault. So sexual assault is very related to all of these other social justice issues that we talk about. It's linked to poverty. Of course, we know people who have fewer resources are more likely to be in environments and situations where they're at risk of being assaulted. So yeah, that's kind of the big answer. Um, Our society's attitudes about gender and sex and sexuality, for sure. But, But it makes perfect sense 
because when we talk about oppression and, and we'll talk about our society in, in, in a couple of seconds, but we talk about oppression, the those individuals who have significant risk factors often become blamed. Mm-hmm. The, the victims get blamed uh, rather than the perpetrator and they blame it on some of the risk factors. You know, somebody's using drugs when there's, uh, and it's that oppressiveness in our society um, that we see in the inequality. So it makes perfect sense. Um, we look at the numbers. Uh, over over thirty three percent of women, so over one in three women, have experienced sexual uh, violence that involved physical contact in their lifetime. So thirty three percent. And the CDC, the Center for Disease, uh, Disease Control, has identified sexual violence as a serious public health problem. Can you talk about the significance of this, given our society's patriarchal history? Yeah, it is extremely common. This is an epidemic. And that's something that we can't take lightly that this is happening to so many people, either everyone who's listening to this podcast, either you yourself are a survivor of sexual assault or someone you love is, and that matters. And I think, you know, even if the numbers weren't that high, even if this was happening to one in a thousand people, I think it would matter because it really does have an impact on individuals. Individuals who have experienced sexual assault are more likely to have depression, anxiety, of course, PTSD, substance use disorders, to have suicidal ideation, eating disorders, really a whole host of mental health conditions. They are more likely to experience issues with their work and their schooling. And that's not fair. I think, you know, there's a whole, a whole group of people. And as we said, it's you know generally a, a very specific group of people, generally women, LGBTQ people, people of color, who might be dropping out of college, dropping out of the workforce because of this trauma. And you know, that's someone who could have gone on to cure cancer or what have you. So it is something that not only is affecting those individuals, but is affecting our entire society and each and every one of us. I think the loss of human potential that comes from someone experiencing sexual assault is gigantic. That's and that's, scary. Uh, that's why it keeps going, you know, because it, it's a way to keep people down. As I had said before, this is about oppression. This is a way to continue to exert control over an entire class of people. With the CDC kind of identifying it as a serious public health problem, does that change the focus, the look of it um, societally? Um uh, because I know for when the Surgeon General identified uh, substance use disorders as a significant public health problem, it really attacked the moral base that people believed uh, and changed the game, so to speak, on substance use disorders. Is there any, do you see positive change coming from the CDC identifying it as a public health problem? I do. I think that framing sexual assault as a public health issue is helpful for me. And maybe that's because I am a social worker. I tend to think in a more public health minded way, but I think for a long time, people thought about sexual assault only in a criminal justice lens. So viewing this as this is wrong because it's a crime. And I think that's something that I always say it's sexual assault is not wrong because it's a crime. It's a crime because it's wrong. This is something that we aren't going to legislate our way out of, you know, sexual assault has been illegal for many, many years, and people are still doing it. These laws exist, and they're still not being utilized. When we look at the actual numbers of rapists who are you know, put on trial and actually convicted, 
the numbers are exceedingly low, shockingly low. So it hasn't worked to view it as a criminal justice issue. And I think viewing this as a public health issue, this is something that isn't just hurting individual people, but is hurting our entire country. This is something that's hurting the general public, I find very helpful. And then being able to take a more public health approach to prevention, I think is also very helpful for me. So not just viewing things as individual risk reduction and we need to, you know, don't take a drink from a stranger at a bar, but actually viewing this as a public health issue and something that we need to address culturally and societally instead of individually. And I think that's really important because it, it, the legal system looks at things and deals with things in a reactionary way. Something happened, so we're going to have to deal with it legislatively and make a law. As opposed to the public health approaches, it's always looking to the future and not just what's happening now, and but how to mitigate it so that it's decreased in the future and that you're you're dealing with all ends of the spectrum from prevention to treatment to, to certainly the legal uh, process is part of it, but it can't be the focus, that it's a much more widespread uh, re, uh, response. So we're responding to what's happening rather than reacting. Yes, exactly. Um, in our work with, with those who have substance use disorders, we're really well-versed in talking about risk and protective factors. Can you talk about some risk factors for sexual violence and also some protective factors? Yeah, so some risk factors for the perpetration of sexual violence. I would say the biggest one is having sexist attitudes and having very rigid views on gender. And unfortunately, living in the society we do, that's very, very common culturally. We are taught to have these really rigid gender roles. So sometimes those gender roles are focusing on male superiority, on entitlement, specifically sexual entitlement. Mm -hmm. And those are very much risk factors for then going on to commit sexual violence, which makes a lot of sense. If you are taught from the time you're a very small child that, you know, a wife is there to have sex with you whenever you want, you're of course going to internalize those messages and go on to, you know, behave in that way. So we do see the vast majority of sexual assault perpetrators are men. There are female perpetrators, of course, who also are internalizing these same sexist messages. So, you know, kind of have a lot of that internal sexism. Some other risk factors are being in an environment, oftentimes a closed environment, where these attitudes are common. So if, you know, you are in a workplace where sexist jokes are the norm, that's something that, you know, you take on kind of those, you could say smaller, lower, lower level attitudes and then have them ramp up from there. If you work somewhere where sexist jokes are okay, what else can you get away with? So we see that a lot in environments that are oftentimes, you know, hyper-masculine, closed groups, so a sports team, on military bases, fraternities. Those are all places where, to be completely frank, masculinity can kind of run amok and become something really ugly, where I don't think that has to be the case. So the protective factors, on the other hand, is if you are a man who is getting really positive messages about masculinity, about gender and sexuality, if you feel supported by the community that you're in, 
to actually, you know, become a better person and treat people with empathy, that is something that can be a protective factor. Another risk factor that I didn't mention that is pretty obvious is if you've committed other forms of violence. So someone who has committed physical assaults, animal abuse, intimate partner violence, arson, they are more likely to commit sexual violence. Because again, those are all power or power and control crimes. You know, it's someone who wants to feel that that power of hurting someone. And I think there are pockets of our society, like you know, the military may be one. And, and uh, you know, I, I paid for college by working at a shipyard. So I certainly know what that environment is like, um, where toxic masculinity is, is the expectation and the norm. Uh, yes. As opposed to, and and when that's attacked, it's oh, you're attacking masculinity. When not, a, uh, that's not the case. That it, you're, you're attacking toxic masculinity, where those views are perpetrated in, into action. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that those spaces where historically some of the worst attitudes have been are the spaces with the most revolutionary power to change the way that we view masculinity. I previously worked on a naval base, and they. They were working so hard to change the culture. And there are those little things. I know it was a big deal when they, I guess all of the planes used to have, you know, images of sexualized women on them, pinup girl kind of things and realizing, you know what, what message does this send to our female members and about the attitudes that we have? And I think when those groups wake up and realize, oh, wait, this could be a space where we really support each other and make each other better men and hold ourselves accountable, I think that can be really, really powerful. And I am very hopeful that those changes are being made. I think I wouldn't be doing this work if I wasn't hopeful that people are changing and people are hearing these messages and actually having it affect them. And I think that when you look at things like the images on planes or in anywhere in society, those are coming from the view of the perpetrator, so to speak, um, and not the view of somebody who's a potential victim, where you would see, hey, that's, you know, oh, they're doing this, it's cancel culture. That's the latest thing. Instead of saying, well, we're looking at it from a different perspective and who may be affected from it, other than we find it amusing. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard you say that our society has a really sick relationship with power. Now, that's a quote from you. And given the makeup of our audience, I don't think you'd get a, have a lot of the difficulty, you know, getting agreement from the listeners. But can you expand upon that statement a bit? Yeah, I think, unfortunately, everything in our society is about power. And it's a very singular vision of what power is. It's this very individualistic, capitalist view of power that, you know, you need to get to the top by any means necessary And usually that's going to mean tearing some people down. So as I had said, it's, you know, sexual assault is it's a way to make yourself feel bigger by making someone else feel smaller. And I think that that definitely influences our relationships. I think everyone's relationship to, you know, romance, sexual relationships. And I don't think that that is healthy. I think we do need to be focusing on a more empathetic view of power, a more communal or collective view of power. And that true power is paying attention to the people around you and working to uplift them, to listen to them, 
and to make everyone's lives better instead of this idea that, you know, I'm going to come out on top no matter who I have to hurt. And I think a lot of that, yeah, is taught from a very young age. I think the way we talk about sex and relationships with young boys is frankly sometimes quite disturbing. This idea that, you know, if you want to be, if you want to be the man, you have to go out and get all these girls by any means necessary, that that's what's going to make you the popular guy, the cool guy. And that's pretty dark when you stop and think about it. So yeah, I'm always trying to promote healthier views of what relationships could be, that relationships could be something that stems from empathy and has to do with collective pleasure and connection. Someday, maybe. Go ahead. Someday, maybe. I mean, I think having more conversations with young people about consent and about power dynamics would be a great place to start. Actually having sex ed in schools that's inclusive, that is gender affirming, that's a place to start, I think. The first podcast we did for this um, you know, two years ago was with a friend and colleague of mine, and we talked about um, sexuality and relationships in recovery, especially early recovery. And part of her point was it's a great opportunity as people are changing things about their lives to look at what a healthy relationship is and uh, and move forward from that with much more positive messages. And I got a lot of grief about that because the common wisdom in substance use disorders is no relationships for a year and all of these things that just aren't realistic. And rather than focusing on no relationships, let's focus on healthy relationships. And, and human beings are sexual beings, whether they're in recovery or not. So let's focus on healthy sexuality, get those messages out there so it can become that affirming uh, experience that, that you had just recently mentioned. Um, in your introductory training event on sexual violence through tpn.health, you quote from Susan Brown Miller's 1975 text, Against Our Will. And I find that fascinating. And I understand the the some of the complaints against it and some of the uh, uh, criticism, but it doesn't take away from the overall message. Um, and, and she says, rapists may operate in an emotional setting or within a dependent relationship that provides a hierarchical, hierarchical authoritarian structure of its own that weakens a victim's resistance, distorts her perspective and confounds her will. What she's describing right there looks awfully similar to relationships that are all too familiar to the people that we serve in substance disorder, disorder treatment and recovery services. So based upon this, what are some of the considerations we must keep in mind as we provide services, uh, SUD services to survivors of sexual violence? Yeah, I think what that quote is really getting at is oftentimes the power dynamics present in a sexual assault are not as obvious as you would think. I think most professionals or most people in general would be pretty comfortable with a typical violent sexual assault that you would think of, you know, where there's a weapon involved, there's physical threat involved. You would think, oh yeah, of course that person, they couldn't say no in that moment. But the areas where the power dynamic is a little bit more subtle and a little bit more nuanced, that's harder for us to wrap our minds around. And that's really often the case when there are substances involved. So really trying to think, okay, maybe this person 
they don't look like the typical victim in quotation marks. They didn't say no, but maybe they felt in that moment like they couldn't say no if that is the person that they use with, if that's the person who is buying drugs in their relationship and that's something that they feel that they need to survive. How could they say no if you know they're participating in sex work, perhaps to support a drug drug use, and they you know maybe wouldn't have consented to that under other circumstances. We have to you know kind of challenge our thinking of when a person is able to consent and what dynamics are at play because it is a lot more complicated than that. And I think what that looks like in actual treatment and working with people is just to do everything that we can to minimize victim blaming. So, you know, saying, I I don't think anyone would say straight up, like, this is your fault, but the subtle things that we say that really relay the message that this is your fault, this is happening because you were drinking or because you were using drugs. That is so hard for a survivor to hear. Cause I will tell you right now, all of the blame and shame that they're getting from the outside world, it's nothing compared to the blame and shame that they are giving themselves. And that's coming from their own selves. So anything we can do to try to have empathy for their situation and to understand that it's not always as black and white as no means no, or I couldn't say no because this person had a gun to my head. It's not always that obvious but that doesn't mean it was right. And that doesn't mean that person in that moment didn't feel very threatened, very unsafe. And just, you know, trying to, as I said, be as empathetic as possible with that. It's, it's very easy for us in the field to grasp forcible uh, Mm -hmm. sexual violence because it's, it's much more tangible and, and, Oh, that poor person. But the idea of coercion and the subtleties in coercion are harder to grasp and I think is also something that we we need to understand what that coercion is um, and, and the different ways it, it comes into play. Um, and I, I, it's just kind of thinking out loud here on that, that it, it, the coercion aspect I think would be, is much more difficult for people to grasp and making it much more easier to place blame on the victim without actually saying that, but in their head, well, they could have done this, they could have done that, and not understanding the the contextual factors uh, of that individual's life and what their experiences and what's happened. Yeah, 100%. I mean, what's more coercive than addiction? You know, that's something that absolutely has the power to affect someone's ability to to consent. You know, one of the things that I'm, I'm vigilantly, really, if not hypervigilantly aware of, is the effect of stigma on one's ability to recover from SUDs, especially when it subsists through the words and behaviors of those in the helping professions. Uh, if I had a dime for every time I heard a professional say something that was incredibly stigmatizing, although it wasn't meant to be, um, you know, I, I'd have a lot of dimes anyways. Uh, are there stigmatizing words and phrases that SUD professionals should absolutely avoid. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. And I definitely, I'm someone who I'm not as well-versed in the substance abuse field. And I'm sure I have said things that are stigmatizing Mm -hmm. accidentally. I'm also always trying to learn and be better and correct myself. So I appreciate this question. I think 
There are a lot of kind of nitpicky things with language that people in the sexual violence field will say. I know you probably heard me say survivor a lot. So instead of calling someone a victim, which is a very criminal justice term, a lot of people find that stigmatizing. They think I'm a strong person. I'm a, I'm, you know, just a a whole person. I'm not this weak person. I'm not a victim. So that's why we kind of say a survivor of sexual Mm -hmm. violence. But of course, just like a lot of words in your field, I'm sure a lot of people do identify as victims. And that's something that they find powerful to conceptualize themselves as, you know what? I actually am a victim of a crime. This was a serious thing, can be powerful, but generally I say a survivor of sexual violence. Also trying to use that person first language that I think a lot of us are familiar with. So recognizing that someone, someone isn't the bad thing that happened to them. They are a person who has experienced sexual assaults. Um, I also try to avoid the kind of more passive language when we're talking about sexual assault that generally is focused on the survivor and not the perpetrator. So you'll see something like this woman was raped instead of this man raped this woman. Like, you know, they're the one who did the action. They're the one who did the bad thing. Why are we kind of now using this word only when applying to the survivor themselves. Um, If that makes sense. So I try to do everything Mm. I can to kind of focus on the perpetrator when I'm talking about the language. Another thing is just when talking about these subjects, just to actually say it and to name it. And that's hard to do because a lot of these topics are still really taboo and just hard to talk about. So I can't tell you how many conversations I have had with clients who, you know, they're kind of talking around it. They're, they're not really saying the words and I've just gone and said, okay, that sounds a lot like sexual assault to me. And once you say it for a lot of people, they are like, yeah, no, I was, I was kind of waiting for you to say that. I kind of think it was that too. So just not being afraid to name it, not being afraid to say these, these words that somehow now we think are curse words, but they're not, they're just things that unfortunately happen. So I think you know, there, there is power in naming these things and actually saying specific words. And, and using person first language uh, is always going to be helpful it, um, in terms of being more empowering and reducing stigma. Uh, so a, a, a person with a substance use disorder is better than an addict saying it that way, a, uh, a person, a survivor of sexual assault is better than a victim of sexual assault. The language is empowering that we're using. And I, I think that's kind of the same and for both. And I look at it as a learning experience, certainly for me. Um, it, when I was looking at the uh, National Sexual Violence Resource Center's website to kind of get some background, um, I saw language on there that I wasn't especially comfortable with, that I may reach out to them and say, we're talking about individual substance disorders and make it a learning experience rather than a blaming. Hey, you shouldn't say that. It's, hey, here's where the field is at right now. Yes. Using person first and strengths-based language. And that's uh, our and I think that, to each other as professionals is to help other people get better and, to, you know, all kind I, of rise not, up together. Not to catch somebody using the wrong language, but to say, hey, let's you know, let's find a better way to say that. I would also say another thing I wanted to mention when thinking about language is to just make sure that you're always using gender neutral language. I think there are a lot of assumptions around gender when it comes to sexual assault. The idea that all men are perpetrators, 
all women are victims and that's absolutely not the case. So, you know, just never to assume the gender of, you know, someone's perpetrator when they're talking about a sexual assault, because that can be really minimizing for people and really hard. I think specifically I'm, I'm thinking about men who have been assaulted by women. That's something that's really taboo and really hard to talk about. I think those numbers statistically are very undercounted. There's not a lot of good research just because a lot of men are uncomfortable talking about it. They're uncomfortable thinking about a woman being a perpetrator. I think our society is not ready to face the fact that women can do really bad things. So not just making those assumptions about people's genders, because that can be tough for people. And, and in general, just so I saw that just under 25% of men are victims of sexual violence that involve physical contact. Um, there are going to be male and female perpetrators in that and male and female perpetrators against women. It, yeah. It's, it's not as cut and dry. You know, there's not a little checkbox that fits. Um, situations are very different. One of the things that we've learned over the years about public health problems is the importance of prevention. You had mentioned that. So we prevention can help turn the tide. Can you talk about some of the prevention efforts out there that can change attitudes and behaviors? Yeah, as I said earlier, I think sex ed, having good comprehensive sex education for young people is extremely powerful and sex education that is focused on healthy relationships and pleasurable sex, which is, that's what's hard for people. I think a lot of schools are comfortable talking about sex makes a baby, but people aren't talking about sex makes fun and good relationships. So actually having people, instead of seeing sex as this taboo power play, actually seeing it as something that is a beautiful thing to share within a relationship is huge. I think focusing on some of those macro causes, you know, ways to reduce gender inequality. So addressing the pay gap, addressing poverty. These are things that are super high level, but really can create a more equal world. And when we are in a more equal world. We're in a world where fewer people can be taken advantage of without impunity. So that's big. And then I think bystander intervention. So the idea that we are all in this world to look out for each other. How can you as an individual speak up and say something when something not right is happening? So that could be when you witness a situation that you think could turn into an assault how to actually stop that from happening or just intervening when you hear your friend make an inappropriate joke, you hear your boss, you know, call someone an inappropriate name, how to in that moment step up and be the bigger person and actually change the course and use that as a teachable moment to look out for each other. And I, I, I see an incredible amount of value in that last example you give because it may start out as, hey, don't say that in front of Brittany. But it leads to new behavior patterns, because if they're catching themselves, it may change what they say to other people as well, because you start expressing things differently. And we are a, you know, a society and human nature is to repeat what we can get away with, so to speak. Right. We repeat patterns of behavior. And when we inject a change in there and, and actually think instead of 
just auto respond, it makes a difference. And it can, it, if you can change one person, um, it, it, you reduce potential list of victims as well as people who experience. Um, and I, I look at it that way. Um, you know, in the Western European countries where they're much more open about human sexuality, you in some of them you also see less sexual violence because that's not a taboo. Um, and I don't know what the numbers. I just saw some stuff and um, and recognize that the more open a society is, uh, you can talk through problems, you can talk through issues, you can talk about things, and communication is the key. And it's the key in relationships, which which is usually the downfall of most relationships as well, poor communication. Um, if there was one thing, or more if you got them, that every substance use disorder professional should know about providing care to those um, who are survivors of sexual violence, what would it be? I think the one thing I would want people to keep in their minds is that the only person responsible for a sexual assault is the perpetrator, is the person who did it. There is nothing that anyone can do that deserves a sexual assault. I should be able to go get drunk and pass out in the middle of Bourbon Street and be safe, not have anyone hurt me. There's nothing that anyone could ever do to deserve being sexually assaulted. So that is the message I would want people to walk away with, anything to reduce victim blaming. And I think generally the substance abuse community are very good about accountability. That's something that I know and personal responsibility and trying to reframe these issues as, okay, we, this is a community that cares about account, accountability, responsibility. Let's put that on the perpetrator. Let's not put this on the victim and the person who actually experienced, you know, this, this bad thing that really hurt them and really had an impact on them. So that is, I think what I would want people to people to know. And also I think when working with sexual assault survivors, you know, in addition to being supportive, not blaming the victim, just the idea that you are not the jury, you don't need to know everything. And that can be hard sometimes because I think it is human nature to want to know the facts, want to figure things out. But you don't really you you do not need to know exactly what happened between whom, both sides of the story. All you need to do is bear witness to this person's story and then support them. That's your job. So I think that that is what I would want people to kind of walk away with and take with them into their practice. We're taught to validate in, in the substance disorder field, validate what somebody's experienced because it is their true experience, um, whether we understand, agree, whatever. And I think that's something that we can do as well with um, people that are survivors of sexual violence. When they tell us something, validate that that's I hear what your what your experience is. I'm I'm there with you as, as much as possible, but without digging, you don't need to dig. You don't need to know certain things. Um, before we finish up, anything you'd like to share with our listeners? I would say just look up your sexual assault coalition in whatever your home state is. Every state has a coalition of sexual assault agencies. So through them, you can find your local sexual assault agencies and partner with them, have a proactive relationship with them. Don't wait until you have a client walk through your door who was just sexually assaulted, actually get to know the victim advocates in your town. I can guarantee that they are amazing people. 
and find ways that you can proactively partner together because it's only going to make both of your services better. So I would say that is, that's the main thing I would want people to, to know. And then if you do want more information, you can find on tpn.health, which is where I'm currently employed, where I say we do free online education for mental health professionals. I do have two sessions up on our site. So you can just search in the on-demand education section, look up my name, look up sexual assault. We also have another, a very wide variety of courses, including some that Jeff has done. So if you are- Jeff is doing next week. Yes, in for that as well. And if you're hungry for more information, I think I'm doing one the day after this post. Okay, great. Well, yeah, attend that as well. Um, Brittany, thank you. I appreciate all your time today and, and your passion for the subject and, and kind of uh, helping us understand something we may not have a lot of experience uh, in working with and, and to do our jobs better. I think that that's important. Um, and again, uh, I hope we get to talk again soon. Yes, absolutely. Anyone, please reach out. Always down to have these conversations. It's what I live for. So uh, That's going to do it for this episode of Scope of Practice. I'd like to again thank Brittany Hunt for joining us today, for sharing your passion for her work with us. Um, you can certainly participate in Brittany's on-demand virtual events uh, on this issue at tpn.health. And as she said, they are free, which I think is absolutely incredible. Uh, we certainly welcome any organization to join our podcast as a sponsor. Uh, I can be reached at info at ctcertboard.org for more information. We here at the CCB appreciate everyone who's listening. Don't forget to follow us on Podbean, iTunes, Amazon, or your favorite podcast application. We'll catch you next time, everybody. Mm-hmm.